I'm Nina Grenning-Loreyes and this is the Meet the Changemakers podcast, where you will discover imaginative ideas and unconventional perspectives on business and life from visionary minds and impact-driven leaders around the world. Together, we have one thing in common. We are obsessed with creating a better tomorrow and we are ready to make it happen. My guest today is Mary Land, who works for an award-winning NGO in South Africa called Le Sedi Labato. Before I introduce Mary to you, I want to thank you for listening to Meet the Changemakers and invite you to support the podcast and our future changemakers by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite listening app. Thanks for your support. Mary Land is a trained fashion designer and digital marketer from South Africa who spent several years working and traveling abroad as a costume designer for resort theaters. Through cultural immersion, she became passionate about community upliftment through promotion of artisanal craft and storytelling, leading her to get involved with a small yet powerful award-winning NGO in South Africa, Lesedi Labato. For the last 10 years, Lesedi Labato has worked to improve the lives of underserved youth and vulnerable women through various upliftment programs. When not advocating for social change, Mary is a creative, an avid reader, dog mom, beach lover and wife. Mary, I'm really excited that you're joining us today on Meet the Changemakers. And honestly, I don't even remember who, oh no, I do remember who suggested you. My friend uh, Huey in um, Toronto actually suggested you to me. I was so grateful because I am looking for changemakers in all parts of the world and for organizations and projects in all parts of the world, not just in our you know, Western hemisphere where we, of course, are, because we live here, we live in North America, I'm currently in Europe, our focus oftentimes tends to be on what is happening in our regional area or geographic area. But it was important mm -hmm. to me that I also, you know, focus a lens on to other countries, onto other regions and see how we can make a difference, how we can foster change in other areas. And um, I'm glad that you're on today because you're working with a fantastic NGO in South Africa and I would like to learn a little more about your projects, the difference that you're making in the local community there. Before we get into your, into your work, uh, which part of the world are you joining us from today? Where are you today? Thank you, Nina. I'm also very excited to be speaking with you today and um, creating these very important conversations. I am joining from Orlando in Florida, where I now live with my husband. Wonderful. I just pointed to the um, organization that you're working for and you're working for a South African organization yes. um, that's called Lesedi Labatu. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Absolutely, that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it means light for the people, which I find absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit more about the organization and its mission? And also I want to point out because um, you just told me that before our conversation that you had some fantastic news. Your organization has achieved a multi-year grant with the United Nations to reduce gender-based violence in the community. So I'd love to learn more about that. That's fantastic news. 
Awesome, thank you so much. Yes, so Lesedi Labatu means Light for the People. Um, our organization was founded in 2011 by Krishna Grunewald. And so we have just turned 10, which is a substantial milestone. Um, so what we do as an NGO in South Africa, we operate in a community called Mabopani, which is just about 40 kilometers um, north of our capital city, Pretoria. So what we're doing in Mabupani is we run a multifaceted community center with the mission to, to empower and uplift um, vulnerable women and unemployed youth in our community, which is quite underserved and marginalized. And so we do this through a holistic approach to development. So we run various programs that, that work together to help people transform their lives and, and, and improve their lives. So we do um, free skills training. We do job placement assistance. We help people to start small businesses. Um, we run a free daycare program, women empowerment programs. We have extensive uh, preventative educational programs running in the 10 local schools. And then we have a very active outreach and um, social relief department, which is obviously working at extra capacity in light of um, what's happened in our community over the last year with the pandemic. Um, so that's really Lesedi Labatu in a nutshell. And um, yes, we have just achieved one of our most substantial grants up to date with the UN Trust Fund to End Violence Against Women and Girls. So we will be running a three-year program, which ultimately works to reduce gender-based violence in our community. Um, it's quite extensive and holistic, as, as is the work of Lesedi Labatu. So um, we will not only be able to improve the support that we're providing for survivors of abuse, but we'll also be working extensively in the community, providing preventative education, um, awareness campaigns, working with, with youth in local schools, with males, with community leaders, to really create that community support for survivors so that they are more supported and empowered by the people around them rather than ostracized. And then of course, the grant will also allow us to provide um, extra training and capacity building and even debriefing and, and care sessions for our frontline workers who experience vicarious forms of work-related trauma because of the cases that they're handling. And yeah, that's pretty much the, the grant in a nutshell. Um, we'll also be working more and more in the space of entrepreneurship and helping women start their own small businesses as, as an informal way to earn income while the job market is so throttled. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, it's it's really sounds fantastic. It's it sounds very, very complex at the same time. I love this holistic approach. I don't think I have heard about something like that before in this way. Um, but it absolutely makes sense because I can see how one thing affects the other. And if you just focus on one particular aspect of um, a problem, then you won't have the ripple effect that you're probably seeing through the work that you're doing, focusing on this holistic approach. Have you purposefully started out? Has the organization started out with this holistic mindset? Or was it that it organically developed into these different branches of activities that you're currently doing? 
Um, we definitely didn't start out with such a holistic approach. Back in 2011, actually before that, um, Krishna Grunewald, our founder, had started the city Labatu as, as a small project um, underneath the umbrella of another NGO called SAKs for Life. And the program was just growing and growing. And so she branched out and, and you know, uh, made Lesedi Labatu independence in March of 2011. And the primary focus at that time was really youth development through sports programs. And as, as the work continued in the community and more and more needs were realized, so our projects grew and, and really started to form this holistic approach. And now here where we are, 10 years later, um, thanks to the partners that we've had over the last 10 years and our experience in the community, I think it's quite hard to get really in the thick of things of community developments in such an underserved area and really just focus on one element of people's struggles. You know, we like to think of it in terms of the, um, the Maslow hierarchy of needs, you know, in order to reach that very top tier of self-actualization and living a purposeful fulfilled independent life, you know, you really have to start at the very bottom, um, which is the most basic human needs commodities and, and work your way up that pyramid to get to that top tier. Um, and you can't miss a level in order to get there. Um, so that kind of inspires a lot of our approach these days, but we definitely didn't start out that way. It's just thanks to the incredible growth of the organization and our response to the needs of the community and how they change. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting and probably also, you know, an inspiration to other organizations that might start out in a certain area and then can't even foresee where they might actually end up growing in which other areas they might be working in, you know, five, 10 years from today, um, because um, also the world around us is so fluid and we can't um, expect or anticipate certain you know, events that are happening around us, like, for example, COVID-19. And I read actually on the Le Cedi Labato website that um, gender-based violence is unfortunately a very tragic endemic um, in South Africa. And um, I was shocked, for example, when I read there are some statistics for those people who want to learn a little bit more, check out their website. But uh, I was shocked when I read on your website that gender-based violence cases have tripled in the country during the COVID-19 yeah. national lockdown. So can you tell us a little bit more about the situation in South Africa and uh, how your organization then empowers women to rise above their vulnerable circumstances? Yes, absolutely. This has really happened in our community, but I think that it is an issue that is actually globally widespread throughout the pandemic um, in any type of community or country that was already struggling with violence against women and girls the environment of COVID-19 and what all the strains and restrictions have led to has really exacerbated gender-based violence or, or violence against women. And so, you know, South Africa's lockdowns were some of the strictest in the world. And that was primarily because a large part of our population, about 30%, is um, living with HIV AIDS or tuberculosis. And this highly you know, suppresses one's um, immunity. And so our government was very, very strict with lockdowns. They were very hard. And if you're privileged to live in a, in a comfortable home, you know, with access to the internet and, and all that you need at home, the lockdowns are inconvenient, but they're manageable. 
And if you can picture life in a community or, you know, in South Africa, we'll call it a township, you know, you have large households of people living in informal shelters like a shack or a basic one or two bedroom home with up to 10 or even more people living under one roof. And everything is very cramped. And of course, the, it's, it's removed from the city and it's access to all the resources, you know, because of the segregation of, of apartheid. And so lockdowns in the community were, were near impossible to, to manage. On top of that, it's estimated that about 100,000 businesses closed down in South Africa throughout the pandemic. And that means that our unemployment rate has skyrocketed. So breadwinners lost their income. Families are super strained financially. You know, there's a reliance on alcohol and drug abuse because there just isn't access to better support. Social services were, were throttled and just overwhelmed and at times shut down. And so what this translates to is a very desperate situation for women who were already vulnerable or living with an abusive partner. And so gender-based violence really, really skyrocketed throughout the pandemic in our country. And another factor to mention is that for a woman who is so desperate to feed her family and really has no other means, especially for foreign nationals, women who came to our country to find a better life from neighboring countries, they don't have the opportunity to work formally. And so they are forced into commercial sex work, which is a very very abusive and vulnerable environment. And so our organization was already working in the space of empowering women before the pandemic. But throughout the last year, we, we just felt so strongly called to respond in a bigger and more impactful way. And so we developed and we started a program called Ikemele, which means to rise up in our local language. And what this does is it pulls together some of the very important existing services of Lesedi Labatu, um, skills training, counseling, psychosocial support, um, support groups, and then also just practical support in terms of food parcels and transport fare. And all of these services work together to help vulnerable women overcome their past and the trauma that they've lived and get to a point where they can you know, become financially independent and reduce their risk of relying on an abusive partner. Of course, this program design has really inspired um, project that we've proposed to the UN, which will now be rolling out and really expanding the impact of, of the work that we've been trying to achieve for vulnerable women in our community. Yeah, that's um, shocking. When you describe the, the circumstances and we living in, in our, like you said, comfortable apartments or houses mm -hmm. uh, somewhere in North America or in Europe, we can't even fathom or we don't think about the, the living circumstances and what that might do. But it's mm -hmm. absolutely then, if you think about it, no surprise to see it tripling. How was this measured? How do you even know what the numbers are? Are you going through the communities and talking to people or are cases reported more? I'm just wondering if a lot of this violence is also happening in your home. It's probably incredibly difficult to even get it reported and get to, to the root cause of it um, because it is so private. Absolutely. I think something very important to, to mention, just to provide some further context to our specific community, is that it's a typically African patriarchal society where the male of the household has the last say um, it's culturally seen that you know he 
can, I don't know how to say it better, but the male has control over his household and his partner or his wife. It is seen from the community that, that domestic issues are handled within the household by the male, how he pleases to do so. And so women don't feel that they have the voice to, to stand up and say enough is enough, this isn't right, I shouldn't be being abused. Another issue that we face is that the police are not always as active as they should be in some cases or well-trained enough on how to handle a report of a rape or, or domestic abuse. And so women often do not report their, their abuse. So it is very, very hard to track the actual statistics a lot of the, the gender-based violence statistics throughout the pandemic were actually tracked by the number of um, phone calls into hotlines that do support survivors of abuse. And then, of course, as an organization in our community, we do conduct our own research and we have experience working with so many vulnerable women. And in, in our personal experience as an organization, our number of cases of women that we were working with through support groups and, and social relief, it really grew. I think before the pandemic, we were working with about 70 women in our gender-based violence support group. And now we are well, well over 150, closer to 200. And that's just the number of women that we can capacitate helping at this time. Um, that's not to say that that's the total number of women out there that need our services. Wow. And how do you, when you describe, you know, your holistic approach in this program, Ikemele, how do you also work with the men? Because I can imagine that if you provide these support groups after a woman has experienced violence or domestic abuse, what happens then? How do you then provide that, that support so that you also affect long-term change because you're saying that it is still such a patriarchal society. I wonder how that kind of factors into the support that you can give and how one can actually approach a systemic change when the system is kind of against you in this case. Yeah, that's such an important question to pose. I think that working with supporting survivors of abuse is absolutely crucial. But if that's all that we focus on, we're just putting a bandaid on the gunshot wound. And one has to go back to the systemic issues and address the community beliefs and behaviors and attitudes in order to actually see a reduction in gender-based violence. Um, the work that we do with males, we have you know, recently started expanding this more in light of the, the tragic increase in gender-based violence. We find it very important, you know, knowledge is power. And if you've grown up in a, in a certain way with certain beliefs that can be toxic, you don't know better, you don't understand a different viewpoint. And so it's very important to work with males and to empower them with the knowledge around the different forms of abuse, sexual health, gender-based violence, and, and, and what their role is as, as a male in their community, as a brother, as a son, as a father, as a, as a husband or a partner. And so we, we do monthly workshops with um, small intimate groups of men with a community partner that comes in and, and provides this training. And we've seen such positive response. The males are so excited to also be receiving support and to be, you know, recognized that they also need that kind of empowerment. They're actually asking to have their own support groups, you know, which is something that we hope to do in the future. 
The other kind of preventative work that we do with males is in the local schools. As I mentioned before, we have 10 partnering local schools and we are actively involved. We, we go in with um, a preventative educational toolkit and we have actual classroom sessions with young girls and boys from primary school level up to high school level. And this toolkit provides really the, the soft skills and that extra knowledge that the, you know, the government school syllabus isn't focusing on quite enough around, again, sexual health, gender-based violence, human rights, um, healthy relationships, mental health, all these elements that the youth need to be able to make better decisions in their future and have healthier relationships. And I think that when you can target the youth who may themselves be vulnerable to abuse or exposed to, to acts of violence against women, that is where we can start to see the future change for our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, truly a, a generational change then um, by mm -hmm. addressing the next generation. Another um, question I have for you is, you, we just talked about how, you know, due to the COVID lockdowns, um, gender-based violence cases have gone up so much. Were there any other initiatives or programs that you've seen affected due to the pandemic? And uh, how did you respond there? Yeah, honestly, during hard lockdowns, I mean, almost all of our programs were disrupted. Um, it really required us to stay on our toes and adjust and find a sense of resilience as a team um, and just adapt week by week to what was going on with the lockdowns and what was going on in our community. I think the other kind of biggest issue that has come to light or has been exacerbated is just the livelihoods of people. As I mentioned, our unemployment rate has really skyrocketed. Before the pandemic, we were at about 25%. And now, realistically, we're at about 34%. But again, not everything is recorded that could be even higher. And so a lot of people are without work. Obviously, most of the jobs are in the cities. And with lockdowns, people didn't even have the ability to get to the city from the townships. And so People are struggling. People are hungry. They don't have a way to feed their families. And so our outreach department has really had to expand and um, try to increase its impact in just providing that basic emergency relief while we get through this and we are able to rebuild again. Mm -hmm. And how is South Africa doing right now? I know we hear a lot here in Europe and in other countries about the South African variant as it comes to the <laughs> virus itself, but we don't hear so much about how the country is actually doing right now and what the numbers are and what the vaccination rate is. So unfortunately, um, the vaccination program is rolling out slower than desired. Our healthcare workers have been vaccinated and they're starting to vaccinate the older population but it is rolling out slower than in, you know, established first world countries. You know, very sadly, there is a fear of a third wave. The case numbers have started to increase again in South Africa. It's winter right now. And that is just, you know, the worst scenario possible for, for a virus like COVID-19. So currently the situation, uh, the last couple of months, has been pretty good, the restrictions have eased, but there is fear of, of a third wave of lockdown while we wait for the vaccination to roll out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I um, also wanted to ask you, this is something that I'm always curious about um, coming from a marketing and brand storytelling perspective as well, is that mm -hmm. 
As an organization, you have raised quite a good amount of money through your various initiatives um, over the last few years, including that multi-year grant that we just talked about with the UN. How do you manage to raise awareness and motivate donors to give um, in a time where we do see social media algorithms make it harder for organizations to widen their organic reach? Nonprofits usually don't have the same amount of money to promote and to use the promotional tools that we currently have available with social media and with the internet. And also we don't want to spend every dollar that we get on marketing because that dollar might be used for our actual you know, projects and programs. It's always a very interesting conversation around how do you get the word out these days in a time where you do see algorithms make it harder for organic reach Absolutely. That is a very interesting question and um, something that we are quite often asked about. Absolutely. We try to keep our administrative overheads to the absolute minimum. I think besides for just running our websites, we do not pay for any other digital marketing services. Um, we're very active on Facebook and Instagram, our email marketing and other digital marketing avenues, but we do things as freely as we possibly can so that every you know random amount does go towards actual program activities. And I think the secret to fundraising and raising that support that we need is to be as diverse as possible. Of course, our grants are our major, it's the backbone of our funding. It's what funds actual program activities. Um, we also have partnered with some very, very special organizations, you know, who run a foundation and are able to rally for support on our behalf that has really carried us through the years. And then in terms of crowdfunding initiatives, getting our supporters involved and um, that individual giving, again, we have to be as diverse as possible, you know, run active campaigns. The storytelling aspect to that is so important because when you're asking somebody to sacrifice some of their hard earned, you know, money, they have to understand why, why do they need to give this up? Why is it so important? What is the issue? And how can their rand amount or their dollar amount, how can that affect change, you know, practically without getting lost in the system somewhere. And another approach that we take is directly reaching out to people, key supporters that have, have walked this journey with us over the years and are really invested in um, whatever is going on at the time with our center, be that volunteers or either internationally or locally or long-term donors really maintaining those relationships so that when the time of need is upon us, we already have that relationship established and they're willing to jump in and help because they believe in what we're doing so much. So I think in a nutshell, the secret to, to raising that support, and I'm sure you have had this experience as well in being involved in a nonprofit, is to be as diverse as possible and not rely on just one avenue of funding. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It all makes sense. But I have another question for you because you are working in such, with such global mindset and uh, you have probably, uh, you know, a, a quite a different perspective than other people have on, on uh, the work that you do. Do you think people as a result of the pandemic have gained an increased awareness about how interconnected our global lives are and and maybe an elevated sense of 
the global community that we are part of because we're sitting here now talking about a you know NGO in South Africa and at least to me I've actually expanded my worldview during the pandemic and looked beyond borders also because there are so many nuances um, when it comes to you know how can we get the world population vaccinated what does it mean for individual countries if they are for example what we're seeing in India now if they're affected harder than other countries and how can we come to help and what does it mean then for global trade for example and for our global economy and how we live together I find this question personally really fascinating and I'm wondering if this new awareness if it is there um would help us actually tackle some of those pressing issues of our time and these inequities that we see locally, but they, they might have a global effect. That's just something that I'm, I'm really thinking about lately. So I'm wondering <laughs> how you think about it and, and what, you, what your take is on this idea of, do you see a change or are we becoming more nationalist and more nationalist minded even because the news cycle is so focused on the local availability of vaccines and the rollout and the regulations and whether you should wear masks or not at this point or what the regulations are in any given locale. So it's an interesting dynamic right now and I'm wondering what you're thinking about it. I absolutely share your fascination and I've been so excited about how the pandemic has made the world so much smaller. I think that remote work and virtual meetings and, you know, speaking with relatives overseas, that was a reality for some before, but throughout the pandemic, we have all been forced to go virtual. We're all spending more time on our devices online. We're so much more comfortable with connecting and meeting with people through a screen, you know, rather than face-to-face, -face, not out of choice, but because we've had to. But it's become part of how everybody around the world operates. And what excites me about that is that it means that we, well, in our case, we've been able to take our message and our narrative to the global stage because it's so much easier these days to connect with people around the world. And I know that there are very, very, very many negatives to the pandemic, but a positive that I recognize is that because of how you know, humanitarian issues have been exacerbated around, around the world, it has created so much more awareness. These issues are not new. Poverty is not new. Gender-based violence is not new, but it is so much more spoken about and the awareness is so much more active now because of how much more time people are spending online. And I think for the, for the ordinary kind of North American or first world citizen, we've been so exposed to what struggling countries are going through and if you are a human with a heart you cannot help but feel incredibly grateful for what you have as well as a sense of responsibility to contribute and give back maybe more than before and that is how I believe how the pandemic has connected this global community and made us all more aware of what's going on outside of our borders and how important it is that we all act together for a global achievements of equality and, and a fair life for all people, no matter which country you come from. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, the fact that I keep mentioning it, but the fact that you did receive the multi-year grant with the United Nations also points to what you, you were just talking about, probably that, mm -hmm. you know, it was easier to talk about the issues and the support that you need in South Africa because of what is happening right now due to COVID-19, because of the pandemic and how it, it basically has exacerbated the issues that we see. And it also actually accelerates the solutions that are there and that we can implement now. Absolutely. I think, you know, when the pandemic first started as an NGO, we definitely, you know, along with many others, you know, we had this fear and uncertainty, what would happen to our funding in the coming months? You know, none of us could forecast how substantial this pandemic would be, how long it would go on for. And, and we, we were definitely aware of the fact that funders may pull their funds, you know, international funders may pull their funds within their country. You know, funders may focus more on COVID, you know, efforts in terms of vaccine and, and all that. And I'm so grateful to say, you know, a year and a, and a few months later, what we've actually seen is substantial funders like the United Nations and many others have really focused their efforts on these humanitarian efforts that have been exacerbated throughout the pandemic. And there's been a lot more access to relief funding. That is something that we are so grateful for because it's kept us alive and thriving throughout the pandemic and able to give our community the services that they have needed in this time of crisis. Mm -hmm. um, shifting gears here, I have uh, one question for you to maybe inspire other change makers, other people who want to make a change, maybe work for an NGO, for an organization that is working on making an impact in their regional area. What have you learned on your journey as a change maker so far that you can share with others? That's a very interesting question um, and, a, and a great question. I think, you know, my background was not in development at all. I, I had studied fashion design. I had worked as a costume designer for resort theaters around the world. And it was only, you know, in my kind of mid-20s that my heart really started to change because of my experiences abroad. And I found this new passion to get involved in community development full-time. I remember all those questions, all those fears, you know, am I adequate? I'm not qualified. Who am I to think I could make an impact? And I suppose my message to anybody out there wanting to make a difference and get involved in this really important humanitarian work that needs to happen around our around the globe is that you have something to bring to the table. It might not be a fire that is currently burning in your in whatever it is that you're doing with your life at this time, but you are a wealth of skills and worldviews and passions. And all you have to do is plug that in to a cause that you have a burning passion to do something about and, and just never underestimate the value that you can bring to a movement just because of who you are. You know, NGOs, we need so many different capacities and skills and, you know, professional experience. And I just believe that every single person, whether you have experience in the development sector, training or not, you have the power to make a difference in your own community or, or another community. Never hold yourself back having imposter syndrome or, or fear of how adequate you might be. Really, every person has the ability to make a substantial difference. 
That's wonderful. Very, very inspiring. Mary, let's do, to wrap it up, let's do a quick Q&A round here to round it off. I'd like to ask you to complete some sentences for me. Um, the first sentence is 2021 is a year of rebuilding and hard work. <laughs> a friend said to me somewhere during the middle of last year, you know, we were talking about this coming year and could we be excited for 2021? And she just said, I think next year is going to be so much hard work. And it really struck me. And I really believe it's true. We have so much work and rebuilding to do after 2020. Absolutely. And the last thought-provoking book that you read was? I like to think that I read a lot of thought-provoking books, but by far the most outstanding book I've read in the last while was American Dirt by Janine Cummins. It follows a fictional story based on the reality of Central Americans immigrating to the United States and the incredible journey and sacrifice that they make just out of the pure fact of running for their life from whatever violence is going on in their own country. And it just really shook me awake to the vulnerability, um, which is very unique, of immigrants trying to get into the United States to live a better life. Wow, that I need to put that on my reading list. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, it's very, very, very good. I couldn't put it down. One of the best pieces of advice I have received is Definitely advice that my mother has given me since I was a little girl. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. I apply this in my daily life when I'm making big decisions or facing what feel like mammoth tasks. Everything can be achieved. You just have to start one bite at a time. That's a really wonderful saying. I have not heard it that way. Is that a South African <laughs> saying? <laughs> it, it may well be, you know. I mean, one doesn't typically eat an elephant, but it's a great thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and last but not least, a change maker who inspires me is? I mean, being South African, I cannot not mention Madiba, Nelson Mandela, the father of our nation. He inspires average South Africans every day his principles and his legacy lives on but I also have to mention one that might be quite controversial at this stage but um, Melinda Gates inspires me a lot I heard her speak at a summit at a very pivotal point in my life where I was starting to transition to full-time community development and her principles and her values continue to inspire me yeah beautiful Mary where can people find you and your organization and connect with you Sure. So I am on LinkedIn. Um, my full name is Mary Lant, um, so you can easily find me there. In terms of our organization, please go to our website. That's www.lesedilabatu.co.za, um, as well as find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Um, we would be so honored if you would just follow us and just stay in touch with the work that our organization is doing and be inspired with us by the good things that are going on in our community. Wonderful. And I will, of course, link out to Lesedi Labato and all of your social profiles as well so that people can find it easily once the episode is up. Thank, Thank you, Mary, you. so much for your time and for giving us a little bit of an insight into the great work that you're doing in South Africa. And I wish you all the best for this year and the future and much success with your work there.
Thank you so much, Nina. And thank you for the opportunity to bring this conversation um, to your audience and all the best with your wonderful, very inspiring podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meet the Changemakers podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found inspiring, instructive or hopeful? Can you think of anyone, maybe a friend, colleague or fellow entrepreneur who would appreciate this conversation? If so, take a second and share today's episode with them. Because together we can make it happen and build a better future. Until next time.